You're listening to the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at Vanderbilt Regional Burn Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, the topic that uh, I want to talk about today comes from an article that I read uh, a couple weeks back in the New York Times. And the title of the article is, uh, the date was uh, December 3rd, 2008. And the title of the article is that uh, City Pushes Cooling Therapy for Cardiac Arrest. And um, basically what the article says is that effective January 1st, New York City ambulances will be taking uh, victims of cardiac arrest to hospitals that are able to deliver uh, uh, therapeutic hypothermia following cardiac arrest. When you get down to the uh, third paragraph, it says it amounts to an endorsement by the Bloomberg administration of labor-intensive, often expensive, and still-developing therapy that smaller community hospitals say they lack the staffing and financial wherewithal to provide. Some hospital officials fear that the policy could be unfair, unfair to these smaller hospitals, depriving them of income from emergency room patients and hurting their reputations with the public. Well, what's interesting about this is that this, the idea of therapeutic hypothermia was not Mayor Bloomberg's, and uh, what it does is that the scientific evidence shows that patients following out-of-hospital ventricular fibrillation arrest who receive therapeutic hypothermia in a timely fashion have better neurological outcomes and better uh, survival. Now, um, when we're making decisions regarding patient outcome and patient therapy, Really, that should be mostly based on, on patient survival and patient outcomes and the idea that we're going to, to be depriving smaller hospitals of uh, potential income and hurting their reputations, and that could be unfair is irrelevant. Uh, and I'd like to go through some of the uh, scientific evidence as well as um, and basically consensus guideline recommendations that have been out for over five years. This is not something that's new. This is something that's well established. In fact, this is ACLS. Um, so it's about time that we uh, institute this. This would be some of the same feedback that somebody might have gotten years ago about the idea of automatic external defibrillators in places like schools and gymnasiums and, and workplaces where we know this technology saves lives. Many of us have uh, resuscitated patients uh, following a, a cardiac arrest and have been uh, somewhat concerned that the patient doesn't uh, wake up immediately following the uh, arrest is going to suffer a prolonged neurological dysfunction and perhaps uh, basically be uh, vegetative. There are uh, some uh, objective evidence uh, that um, one meta-analysis did 11 studies of almost 2,000 patients, and uh, there were no immediate clinical signs to predict outcome uh, neurological outcome following a cardiac arrest. There are some uh, clinical signs following um, cardiac arrest that could be used uh, to predict poor neurological recovery. And these things should be relatively uh, obvious to most of you. Uh, a patient who has um, no corneal reflexes at 24 hours, pupillary, no pupillary response at 24 hours, no motor response at 24 hours, um, and uh, uh, no motor response at 72 hours. The estimate of poor outcome for comatose patients following arrest was 77%, which increased in 97% with negative clinical indicators at uh, 24 to 72 hours. Now, following uh, the resuscitation, the uh, patient has kind of a, a myocardial stun, and uh, then we're also worried about what's the effect on the brain and uh, what are some of the things we can do to um, uh, optimize uh, the chances of survival and a good neurological outcome. Certainly temperature control is one of those things that we need to pay close attention to, uh, whether it's somebody following a brain injury, following cardiac arrest, or uh, a brain trauma, uh, fever, um, 
worsens neurological outcome. Therefore, fever should be aggressively uh, treated. Blood glucose control in critically ill patients has been shown to impact outcome. Therefore, close monitoring of the blood glucose and treating of hyperglycemia is recommended as part of the clinical care treatment of patients following cardiac arrest. Uh, Most patients will be intubated and mechanically ventilated following resuscitation. It's really not known how long mechanical ventilation is necessary, and uh, this must be individualized uh, based on uh, maintaining acceptable oxygen saturation levels. Cardiovascular status following uh, arrest is typically uh, stunned, and typically this will require something such as a vasopressor or some sort of um, support for 24 to 72 hours uh, following uh, resuscitation. Now, the case reports regarding hypothermia go back uh, to the 50s. Uh, Feldman, uh, Feldman and colleagues reported a case of a two-year-old girl who was cold to 33 degrees for 48 hours and had complete neurological recovery. Benson and colleagues reported a series of cases in which only one, uh, um, one patient of seven uh, had survived um, um, when no cooling was uh, used compared to 6 of 12 with hypothermia was induced. Target temperatures there were 31 to 32 degrees. And But these are anecdotal experiences at best. The mechanism by which hypothermia uh, exerts an effect are, uh, is unknown. There are uh, certainly um, a lot of uh, theory on this. But basically during cardiac arrest, uh, blood flow uh, stops or becomes very hypoperfusion or the brain becomes hypoperfused with poor delivery of oxygen. Uh, reperfusion injury can occur when the blood re- uh, flow resumes, first with really suboptimal blood flow with use of cardi- uh, CPR and then uh, following return of spontaneous circulation. Reperfusion injuries uh, could occur with the generation of oxygen-free radicals, uh, inflammatory mediators, as well as excitatory amino acids. Now, the extracerebral effects of cardiac arrest can worsen central nervous system damage with poor perfusion from a stunned myocardium and blood disorders that can also worsen cerebral injury. Uh, Potential mechanisms of the beneficial effects of hypothermia following global ischemia include a reduction of cerebral oxygen consumption, suppression of free oxygen radical uh, production, production of lipoprotein membranes, excuse me, protection of lipoprotein membranes, and reduction of demand in low flow regions, uh, uh, producing a reduction in intracellular acidosis, as well as inhibition of excitatory neurotransmitters. Now, hypothermia can be broken down into uh, uh, three, uh, basically, strata, mild, moderate, and severe. Um, mild hypothermia is defined as a temperature of 32 to 34 degrees centigrade. Moderate hypothermia between 24 and, excuse me, between 28, 28 and 32 degrees centigrade. And severe hypothermia is when the temperature is less than 28 degrees centigrade. Initial studies on hypothermia were done in the 50s and had a moderate uh, target range. Um, and Really, uh, choosing the target range is a balance between uh, risks and benefits. The, the, the risk of making somebody hypothermic versus the perceived neurological benefit that one's going to achieve by getting to, that, getting to and maintaining that particular target temperature. Sturz and colleagues uh, did some studies uh, looking at mild hypothermia with target temperatures of 34 degrees uh, following cardiac arrest in animal studies. And what they found that neurological outcome was best in a group that received mild hypothermia. And that's, again, going 32 to 34 degrees centigrade. And they also looked at the brain histologically and found that histological damage was lower in the uh, hypothermic animals versus the controls. Now, the key to successful implementation of therapeutic hypothermia in clinical practice was the realization that mild hypothermia, mild, 32 to 34 degrees centigrade, was efficacious with really uh, few complications. 
The hypothermia after cardiac arrest study group formed the largest randomized clinical trial of hypothermia. This was a multi-centered trial with blinded assessment of outcome. Adult patients who remained comatose after suffering cardiac arrest from ventricular fibrillation were randomized to either therapeutic mild hypothermia and normal thermia, and, and, and all the patients had returned to spontaneous circulation. Uh, the arrest was presumed to be cardiac of origin. Estimated downtime was no longer than 15 minutes, and the time to return of spontaneous circulation no more than 60 minutes from the time of collapse. So these people were worked pretty hard and pretty aggressively. The patients in the hypothermic group had external cooling devices applied and set to a target temperature between 32 and 34 degrees centigrade. The temperature was maintained for 24 hours following passive rewarming over 8 hours. All patients were intubated, sedated, uh, only 8% of patients in the cardiac arrest, only 8% of patients who uh, suffered cardiac arrest were eligible, and they were able to enroll 275 patients. Uh, patients in the hypothermic group took 105 minutes to initiate cooling measures. So, you know, 105 minutes, that's well over an hour and a half. Um, you know, it's an hour and, hour and 45 minutes. Uh, the median time to achieve the target temperature of 32 to, 43, uh, 32 to 34 degrees was eight hours. So, you know, by looking at this, you see that, you know, these, this wasn't something they achieved in a matter of 10 or 15 minutes. This was patients, you know, hour and 45 minutes following arrest. They started cooling them. They got them down to the target temperatures at 32 to 34 degrees, about eight hours after they started the therapy. Outcome was assessed at six months, and 55% of patients had a favorable neurological outcome in the hypothermic group compared to 39% in the normal thermic group. So these are pretty astonishing, even in the, the patients who didn't get uh, treatment. Uh, after adjustment for all the baseline variables, the risk ratio is 1.47. The overall six-month mortality was also significantly better in the hypothermic compared to the normal thermic group. Although sepsis was more commonly seen in the hypothermic group, there was no overall difference in complication between the two uh, groups. The other major randomized trial was by Bernard and colleagues, again, looking at adult patients. These were out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, again, from VFib. Uh, and patients who had returned to spontaneous circulation were either randomized into hypothermic versus normal thermic groups. All patients were intubated and sedated. Again, patients in the hypothermic group were cooled with ice packs as soon as possible. Again, the core temperature target here was 33 degrees centigrade, and they maintained this for 12 hours. Uh, after 12 hours, they actively then rewarmed the patient over following eight hours. Outcome was assessed a discharged. 49% of patients in the hypothermic group had a good neurological outcome compared with only 26% in the normal thermic group. Odds ratio for good outcome was 5.25. The mortality rate was 551% in the hypothermic group versus 68% in the normal thermic group. Some pretty interesting data. Uh, there's more of it. I want to go back to that article that we started at from the New York Times from December 3rd of 2008 and read that paragraph again. That some hospital officials fear that the policy could be unfair to these smaller hospitals, depriving them of income from emergency room patients and hurting their reputations with the public. Um, uh, again, in, in the face of that science, that's a, that's a pretty difficult position to want to defend. The International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, those of you who don't know what ILCOR is, this is a large uh, uh, international group that basically uh, works on the resuscitation guidelines that are also incorporated uh, in conjunction with the American Heart Association to bring you ACLS, Advanced Cardiac Life Support. In 2003... Okay, now keep in mind, this is the end of 2008, so this is five years ago. Five years ago, ILCOR recommended the following, quote, 
unconscious adult patients with spontaneous circulation after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest should be cooled to 32 to 34 degrees centigrade for 12 to 24 hours when the initial rhythm was ventricular fibrillation. Such cooling may be beneficial for other rhythms or in-hospital cardiac arrest. In 2003, the International Emergency Cardiac Care Guidelines, the authors concluded, quote, mild hypothermia may be beneficial to neurological outcome and is likely to be well tolerated without significant risk of complications. In a select subset of patients who were initially comatose but hemodynamically stable after a witness VFib arrest or presumed cardiac etiology, active induction of hypothermia may be beneficial. Thus, unconscious adult patients with return of spontaneous circulation after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest should be cooled to 32 to 34 degrees centigrade for 12 to 24 hours when the initial rhythm was a V-fib. And for those of you who follow classes of evidence, this is class 2A evidence. Similar therapy may be beneficial also for patients with non-V-fib arrest out-of-hospital or for in-hospital cardiac arrest, and that's class 2B evidence. Despite all of this evidence, the use of uh, uh, therapeutic hypothermia remains a um, rather... um, poorly used and underutilized therapy following cardiac arrest, both uh, for people who suffered out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and certainly for those who suffer from in-hospital cardiac arrest. Uh, there was a study recently that surveyed 265 physicians. 87 responded, 87% said they had not used mild hypothermia in their clinical practice. A number of barriers exist to this, uh, include um, uh, to the use of therapeutic hypothermia, uh, namely because it requires some pre-thought and some organization and uh, a lot of multidisciplinary buy-in. It is not something one physician in a single unit can do on a per-patient uh, basis. Cooling usually begins in the emergency department and then continues through the cardiac care or the critical care units. Order sets need to be multidisciplinary in their structure and need to be followed through. You need to get buy-in from major stakeholders such as cardiology, emergency medicine, critical care, cardiothoracic surgery, neurologists, as well as the nursing staff who are actually going to be delivering the care. If for some reason you can't monitor the patient uh, for core temperatures below 32 degrees, uh, when significant complications can occur, it may not be best to implement such cooling measures. Hypothermia protocol and order set should guide physicians, nurses, as well as other professionals on how best institute cooling, as well as rewarming procedures, as well as the monitoring for potential complications. So where are we and where are we going? Well, we have expended over the decades tremendous amounts of money in cardiopulmonary resuscitation. We have taught millions of workers and school students how to do CPR. We have spent millions upon millions of dollars uh, developing EMS systems to produce the chain of life, uh, positioning uh, these ambulances such that we had response times of four to six minutes, uh, training millions of pre-hospital providers uh, and paramedics ACLS, uh, the development and placement of automatic external defibrillators in every place where there is a major public gathering, being an office building, a gymnasium, or a school. And all of those have been done in the uh, forethought of trying to improve people's uh, ability to be resuscitated in the development of something like a V-fib cardiac arrest. The impediment that we have had once we've got the patient resuscitated is what is the status of their brain following it? Did we get a heart rate back only to get a, a neurologically devastated patient? 
This is the only therapy that we've been able to identify, or one of a few therapies that we've been able to identify, to improve neurological outcome. It has been recommended by the American, uh, excuse me, it's been recommended by the American Heart Association. It's part of the ACLS guidelines as well as ILCOR, and there is certainly valid scientific evidence to support its use. Mild hypothermia should be implemented whenever feasible, in addition to standard supportive and critical care. There are a variety of cooling mechanisms that are um, currently being used and developed. These include contact cooling blankets uh, from, or just a simple development of ice packs over areas like the carotids and the axillary arteries, and there's also endovascular types of cooling mechanisms. I have not seen or am I aware of any prospective randomized trials that certainly are not free of uh, industry sponsorship that demonstrate that one method is superior to the other. I say that knowing that I'll probably get about two dozen emails from vendors from around the world telling me that their method is superior to others, and I apologize for that in advance. The other question that remains unanswered is what do we do in the hospital for cardiac arrest. And again, there's still that unanswered question, and both ILCOR and emergency cardiac care guidelines do suggest that it should be considered for in-hospital cardiac arrest. Uh, if it's beneficial for somebody out of hospital with a downtime of 15 minutes, somebody's got a downtime of 5 or 10 minutes, uh, would it be potentially beneficial uh, in an inpatient in a, a CCU? Recognizing that the cause of cardiac arrest in something like a medical or surgical ICU is certainly to be uh, have a much more uh, variety of other potential causes for that VFib or uh, that VFib arrest. Other thing that needs to be considered, what about the other types of rhythms that cause cardiac arrest, particularly asystole and PEA? Again, the studies have been done with VFib arrest, uh, and um, but keeping in mind that the neurological devastation following any cardiac arrest isn't so much from the actual rhythm, but due to the hypoperfusion of the brain and the global ischemia. And it's for that reason that published guidelines encourage healthcare professionals to consider the use of therapeutic hypothermia in patients who have had return of spontaneous circulation but are comatose with PEA or asystole as the initial rhythm. So in closing, going back to our article from the New York Times, uh, I think it is fair to say that the uh, New York City Fire Department and Emergency Medical Service is acting uh, as science should guide them to act. There is certainly evidence to support the use of their actions, and the, the, city, the, the city and the people of New York will be better served by their excellent fire department as well as their emergency medical service. And that hospitals that feel that uh, this is unfair and perhaps depriving them from income from emergency room patients or perhaps hurting their reputation with the public should perhaps get on the bandwagon. This stuff has been published for over five to six years, some of it going all the way back to the 90s, and perhaps it's time to implement five-year-old technology. You've been listening to the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Thank you for listening. This is Jeff Guy with an afterthought. Uh, if you uh, are looking for other uh, web material that we do have, please visit our webpage, icrounds.com, for a variety of other ICU-related uh, uh, discussions. You can also get this through iTunes by going to the iTunes store and searching ICU rounds for free downloads. Uh, we also have a uh, pre-hospital pharmacology um, a podcast titled Pre-Hospital Pharmacology, excuse me, Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional, which is a companion uh, to one of our textbook projects. Thank you. Have a good day.